Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In 19th century America, unhappily married couples faced divorce laws that varied wildly by state. Some only allowed suits for, quote, divorce of room and board, but not the end of a marriage. In New York, divorce was permitted only in cases of proven adultery, so some people hired actresses to play their mistresses. South Carolina banned it entirely. But in South Dakota, things were different. And by the 1890s, people were flocking to Sioux Falls to take advantage of the laxest divorce laws in the country. It should be no surprise that the women seeking separation caught the most attention, as April White writes in her new book, The Divorce Colony. These women, usually wealthy, almost always white, and trailing newspaper reporters, dared to challenge the status quo barely a generation after married women had won the right to own property, and well before they achieved the vote. April White, a historian and senior editor at Atlas Obscura, joins us to talk about why the struggle for the right to end a marriage was just as important as the right to begin one. Thanks so much for chatting with me, April. Thanks for having me. So how on earth did you get interested in the happenings of Sioux Falls, South Dakota at this precise moment of divorce history? You know, I came upon the idea the same way I've come upon most of my great ideas, which is entirely by accident. I was researching something else entirely when I stumbled upon the words, the divorce colony. And I just had to know what that was. And to my great surprise, it's something that had not really been explored uh, previously uh, at the depth that it deserves. It's funny that you found the phrase, the divorce colony, just like sitting there, because that's what drew me to your book initially, this totally bizarre title. Where did it come from? Why the divorce colony? This is, like all great phrases from this era, something that the newspaper man came up with. Um, it was something to sell newspapers and sort of underline the the scandal that was associated uh, with what was going on in Sioux Falls. Um, so very quickly, you see the phrase going to Sioux Falls as a euphemism for divorce. And you see the men and women, and as you said, it's largely the women that caused the panic, um, start to be referred to as divorce colonists. I mean, how uncommon was divorce at the time? And how much more common, I guess, was it in states like South Dakota, where divorce laws were more lenient? Well, so part of the problem, part of the panic, is that divorce wasn't actually as uncommon as a lot of people wanted it to be. So divorce rates were on the rise. And this was really worrying people who believed that the family was the fundamental building block of society and that change to this status quo was going to shake the foundations of the country. So it was the increasing number of divorces that caused more of a panic than, you know, an outlier divorce would. So divorce was not as uncommon as we think it was, but it was still really hard for a lot of people to access. And that's where you start having people travel to other states where it is easier, or perhaps you hope that it will have less scrutiny because you are not in your own community um, to get a divorce than it would be at home. I often think about it as um, the idea that people were denied 
divorces in their own communities, either by law or by society, you know, the pressures that came around divorce. So why Sioux Falls? So South Dakota has these laxer laws, not because they were super excited about divorce, but because it was a very young state and they were still using many of the territorial laws that had been put in place um, during the time of the Dakota Territory. Uh, One of those was a relatively short residency requirement to fall under the jurisdictions of its courts. So at the time, you had to live there for 90 days in order to be a resident of South Dakota. That gave you all kinds of sort of civic participation opportunities, including filing a lawsuit. So the fact that this was sort of a loophole towards divorce was not intentional in in the Dakota Territory. As to why Sioux Falls specifically, um, it was served by five railroad lines, so it was the easiest place to get to from the east, and it also had the nicest hotel for hundreds of miles. So it was the least foreign for these east coast socialites who were headed out to the west. And the cushiest, I would imagine. Exactly. So you profile four women in the book who got divorces out of the 7,000 odd divorces that were granted in South Dakota in roughly this like 20 year period from the late 1880s to the early 1900s. What was it about these four women that drew you to their stories? There were a couple of things that made me really want to tell the stories of these four women. Um, For one, each of them gave me an opportunity to talk about a really important aspect of the divorce history. So the first woman I introduced is a a woman named Maggie DeStewers, and she is the niece of the Astor family. So there is all this attention on pretty much everything she does. She has decided that she wants to divorce the man that she married a titled Dutch diplomat who she accuses of cruelty and whom she believes wanted to institutionalize her and take control of her ample fortune. So she flees from Paris and ends up in Sioux Falls. And when she's discovered there, it makes front page headlines across the country. She catches the attention of Bishop William Hobart Hare, who is an Episcopal bishop in Sioux Falls. He has been um, close with the Astor family, and they have been his benefactors over the years. In fact, John Jacob Astor III had the cathedral in Sioux Falls built in honor of his late wife. And now the bishop is angry. He, he's already against divorce. But now here is this woman who has brought this attention and sort of this embarrassment to his city and his connections. And that really launches the divorce colony, both the attention and Bishop Hare's efforts to eradicate it. Um, So that is why I wanted to tell Maggie's story as part of this larger divorce history. Um, But it was also just really wonderful to be able to give her a voice after all of these years. The second woman that I introduced is named Mary Nevins Blaine. She is the daughter-in-law of the Secretary of State, James G. Blaine Sr., and he is the standard bearer of the Republican Party and a perpetual presidential candidate. 
He is going to be a presidential candidate again in 1892, just really shortly after Mary's divorce. And through Mary, I get to tell this story of divorce and politics. All of the ways in which the government had to grapple with the questions of divorce and all of the ways in which women were not in the rooms where that happened typically. Um, so ultimately, Mary gets her divorced, um, but her ex-father-in-law can't let it go. And this young actress and the country's top diplomat end up having this front page battle of the wills over who's at fault for this divorce. And I'll be honest, I think Mary wins in the end. The third woman in the book is a woman named Blanche Molyneux. And if you think the things I've already told you are dramatic, Blanche is the most dramatic story in the book because Blanche Molyneux, and this is right at the turn of the century, um, believes her husband is a murderer. Her husband has been put on trial for the poisoning of a, a woman that Blanche didn't know and is also suspected in the murder of a man that Blanche was once involved with. He is first convicted of the murder that he was tried on, um, and then he is later acquitted because of some legal technicalities. And Blanche leaves the next day for Sioux Falls. She goes out there hoping that she will find this community of people who will understand her desire to leave her husband. But she really causes a scandal because she brings all this attention back to the colony again and some legal complications. So in telling Blanche's story, I get to really dive into the legal issues around divorce, including the idea that a South Dakota divorce is only tentatively legal. When you go back to your home state, it's not clear at all that they need to recognize your divorce. So you do see through these years of the divorce colony, lots of challenged divorces, um, including one that goes all the way to the Supreme Court, which decides that the divorce was invalid and the first wife is still the wife. And finally, the fourth woman that I write about in the book is Flora Bigelow Dodge. And this is about 1903 when Flora goes out to Sioux Falls. So it's been the divorce colony. It's had this reputation for quite a while now. But what Flora wants is something different. She says she wants a dignified and legal Dakota divorce. And, and she feels that you still haven't gotten to that point where a woman who has been divorced can be accepted in society. And, and that's what I tell through Flora's story, sort of all of the societal pressures that, that weighed on these women and how Flora does successfully navigate both relationships in Sioux Falls, which never liked the divorce colonists very much, um, and those more widely. So that after she gets a divorce, she does have a religious community that accepts her. She does have a family that accepts her. She can be welcomed into quote unquote good society. And the other reason I love Flora's story is that it's not that dramatic. She was really just unhappy. It feels very modern, very much the story of two people who married young, who, as Flora's father warned her, their affection wore away. Um, and she just wanted to make different choices in life. And, and so I like Flora because I find her very relatable.
I mean, it really sounds like not only the colony, but also, I guess, the the reputation of women seeking divorces really changes, you know, going from Maggie to Flora during this 20-year span. Is that fair to say, do you think, that, like, in that time it got a little less scandalous? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think you see that in Sioux Falls because you see people who have just been consistently exposed to other humans who are just moving through the world making choices and are not, as it turns out, as scandalous and evil up close than you thought they were in the headlines. But I also think you see it more broadly because there are more women getting divorces. This society does need to grapple with this more. And all of those crazy headlines, I mean, yeah, they're soapy and I love them for that. But they also just sort of make it more okay. Like, oh my gosh, the world was going to end when Maggie got her divorce in 1892. The foundations of the country were shaking. Well, 10 years later, when Flora goes to do the same thing and the country's still standing, it doesn't seem like quite as big of a deal anymore. Well, let's talk about the headlines, because I'm very curious about how the papers reported on these cases, especially because even in 2022 today, 100 plus years on, you know, women testifying in public cases get pilloried. So I'm curious, how did the papers report on the case and how did a woman like Maggie DeStewer's testimony go over? I will say that when it came to divorces, uh, everyone came out looking bad often. Um, But there is a quote that I'm not going to be able to quote for you exactly, but there is a quote from one of the advisors for Mary Nevins Blaine, who basically says, I advise all the women who come to me for a divorce to go back to their husbands, because if they get a divorce, it's always going to turn out worse for them. So this idea that the airing of this public laundry um, was just going to tar the woman in a way that it didn't necessarily tar the man. Um, With Maggie, she actually lucked out a little bit. Her husband did not come to Sioux Falls to challenge her, and often the, the spouse didn't. That was one of the benefits of going a long distance. So while he had this very accusatory deposition read aloud in court, including um, accusing her of adultery and naming the person he believed she was involved with. She was there presenting this very dignified image, and it looked very different from the one that was read dryly from the deposition. So the scandal tarred her, certainly, but the people in Sioux Falls did have to look at this woman and think, oh, actually, she seems very composed and very sane. And I say sane because her um, husband accused her of not being. Um, And so telling her story was challenging, but useful for Maggie. Yeah, it's interesting. I would imagine given the residency requirement that relations were not always super convivial (laughs) between the people in Sioux Falls and those coming to get a divorce because you had to reside there for 90 days originally. Sioux Falls is not a a big city. (laughs) You're rubbing shoulders the whole time with people whose decisions to get divorces you might not always agree with. Were, were there two societies or was it a society that sort of like uncomfortably sort of gelled? So when people first started coming to Sioux Falls, before Maggie arrives, you know, in the right in the early 1890s, 
you see the locals sort of thinking, hey, this could be a good thing. These very wealthy people are coming out here and spending money in our small new city that really needs residents and a boost to the economy. So before you get national attention, there is actually some idea that maybe this is a good industry for us. Once you start bringing that attention to the city, you see a real divide between the divorce colonists and the Sioux Falls residents. That distinction plays out in some really funny ways because, first of all, the divorce colonists largely stayed at the Cataract House Hotel, which was just the headquarters for everything in Sioux Falls. So not only is it a small town, it's the parlors of this hotel. And so you'll hear this sort of tittle-tattle about Mary Nevins Blaine not liking the hotel butter, or um, someone being far too extravagant a tipper. Because the Sioux Falls residents are also just fascinated by these people. Like they just, they want to know every story even though they don't want to be seen as associating with them. That does begin to change. There is a, a brief legal scare where people think maybe living at the Cataract House won't be enough to gain you residency. And so you have a few divorce colonists who buy houses in the community. You have some who join the churches. So you do start seeing some intermingling, but um, they try to keep their distance. Let's talk about the demise of the divorce colony or the, the way it fizzles out, because it sort of only lasts for this brief spasm of time and then sort of goes away. The interesting thing I think about the divorce colony's end is that one, it happens twice. So we have this first period of time between about 1891 and 1893, where you need to live in South Dakota for three months to get your residency and file your divorce suit. In 1893, Bishop Hare decides to go to the legislature and lobby for a longer residency requirement. Um, and the idea is that this will eradicate the divorce colony. And so the residency requirement is extended to six months. And now suddenly the shortest residency requirement in the country is in North Dakota, which also has these similarly lax laws around divorce. Um, it turns out fewer people want to go and spend a lot of time in Fargo. <laughs> so you still have some people coming to Sioux Falls because it has this reputation and it has this infrastructure. But largely, you have the slowing of, of the number of people who are coming. That said, the reputation of the city does not change. So between 1893 and 1899, you still get these newspaper articles. You still get these books about what a scandalous place this is. Um, so it still has the impact on the national conversation that it did during this first period before they changed the laws, despite the fact that it is not the divorce mill that everyone says it is. Now, in 1899, North Dakota says, we're done with this. We don't want to have the laxist laws in the land. Um, we're going to increase our residence requirement to a year. And now suddenly the divorce colony in Sioux Falls is back in business. For a period of time there, it's kind of going okay. The newspaper reporters aren't really there. And if you can just come and agree you're not going to make a big deal, maybe we can, you know, go along with this. 
that's until Maggie, I'm sorry, that's until um, Blanche gets there and, and brings sort of all those newspaper reporters that have watched her through her husband's trial. And that's when we see the second fight um, against the Sioux Falls divorce colony. And, and Bishop Hare, although he is ailing at this point, um, is again leading that charge. So that's how we eventually get to the point where it actually comes before the voters in South Dakota as to whether the residency requirement will be extended again. The interesting thing about this second fight is on one side you have the clergy, to be sure, with the exception of the Unitarian Church, which believes that marriages should be better, not we shouldn't be able to get out of them. <laughs> um, but you largely have the clergy. You have a lot of um, political leaders. You know, By this time, President Roosevelt is involved. He's actually suggested that there should be um, a constitutional amendment to give the federal government control of marriage and divorce. Um, you have a lot of social leaders, but fewer than you did before the turn of the century. And so the referendum passes. They extend the residency requirement. But there are a lot of people who vote in favor of keeping divorce as accessible as it was. And that would have been just unheard of, you know, when Maggie first got to Sioux Falls. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget how recently no-fault divorce became the law of the land across the country. I mean, New York only got no-fault divorce in like 2010, which is... And it took until the 60s for there to be more than one cause for divorce in New York. Until the 60s, that same problem that sent people to Sioux Falls was still there. You had to prove adultery in New York to end a marriage. It's wild. I mean, so why tell this story now? You know, we finally have divorce. It's the law of the land. You don't have to air your dirty laundry in public in a court of law anymore. I guess unless you want to, but you don't have to. Why tell this story now? When I first found this story, what attracted me to it was the drama of it. Like, I'll admit, I just loved every single scandalous story. But when I dug in, I realized that we don't really understand this social aspect of divorce. We, we've looked at it often through a legal lens. And the divorce laws take a lot longer to change than the attitudes do. So I thought it was important for us to understand that and important to be able to look at this and realize that each of these women went out to Sioux Falls for individual reasons. And I will be the first to admit they are not perfect test cases. They led these crazy, messy lives. They were certainly not activists who were trying to change the law. They just wanted their own freedom. But in doing so, and in the next person doing it, and the next person doing it, these people who did not have many clear pathways to power made huge change. And they overran every obstacle that had been put up for them. So at the beginning of the divorce colony, uh, there is this report that comes out that had been um, put together by the federal government that counts the number of marriages and divorces in the country. And, and this is what sort of started that panic, really, um, because although we had nothing really to compare it to, the number felt really large. And it had gone up over the 20-year period 
between roughly 1870 and 1890. We happen to get a very similar report from the federal government right at the end of the divorce colony, which looks at roughly the period of time the divorce colony covers. And what this report shows is that two decades, essentially, of divorce opponents putting up legal barriers, putting up economic barriers, putting up social barriers, religious barriers, it didn't matter. People were still going to seek the relief that they needed. People were going to jump over those obstacles and keep asking for the thing that they needed to successfully lead their lives. And I think that piece of the story um, was important and inspiring to me because these women weren't in the rooms where decisions were made, but they still managed to change things. We have links in the show notes to April White's new book, The Divorce Colony, as well as the original Atavist article that started it all. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.